good evening everybody thank you all so much for showing up i'm very excited about this particular episode and this particular week actually because this is berkshire week and every year uh, there is this giant gathering of capitalists at omaha where uh, 40000 people gather for uh, uh, the the annual meeting uh, of berkshire hathaway uh, warren buffett and charlie munger are attending this year and they, they are going to be up on stage answering questions and so on and we haven't done this for two years because of the pandemic and uh, so after two years it's it's going to be a giant get together and so this is the perfect week to have uh, our guest on so our, our guest is chris bloomstrand he's one of the world's foremost experts on this company berkshire hathaway i think if you exclude people like warren buffett and charlie munger and berkshire insiders if you ex- exclude the insiders uh, chris bloomstrand uh, w- would easily be one of the top 5 uh, experts on on berkshire in the, in the whole world so i'm delighted to have chris on here uh the thing i really like about chris is uh, the generosity with which he shares his knowledge so if you, if you follow him on twitter or if you read his letters every year so he he runs a fund uh, the fund is called semper augustus capital and uh, th- there's really no reason for him to uh, come out and share all his experiences uh, he he does a number of podcasts and he gives a number of talks and so on and uh, he he's been in the market he's been around the block several times and he he was there uh, when when the dot com boom and bust happened he was there during the 2008 uh, crisis and so on so he's got a ton of experience uh, of different kinds of markets and he shares this experience with us so when whenever i read anything that chris bloomstrand writes uh, it's just his, his whole experience his uh, broad uh, his broad knowledge and experience just shine through in everything he writes and uh, i i especially love his letters he writes these really long letters and uh, full of all kinds of valuable points and in in those letters uh, berkshire hathaway makes up a significant portion of those letters so chris has been in the company fo- following the company for many decades now and uh, uh, berkshire is a is a component of uh, semper augustus's portfolio so Uh, chris uh, no no satan about berkshire and he writes all this in his wonderful letter and all of us can read his letter and learn about these things uh, for free from his website so i i really love his uh, generosity and uh, uh, the, the way he shares his knowledge with with all of us chris do you want to say a few words no it's uh can you hear me all right yeah yeah i can hear you good it's uh, i'm glad to be doing this with you i've become since you really started posting so much great educational content uh one of your biggest fans i think um your ability to break down investing subjects into very teachable uh threads and um really kind of get to the core of what matters uh, is just great for younger investors for seasoned investors i'm i'm most definitely in in the camp of uh huge fans so it's fun to do this and it's exciting that we're coming into berkshire week it's been too long since we've all been in Omaha and looking forward to to heading out here in a couple of days and spending time with a lot of friends and colleagues and seeing all the people that that it's such a great celebration to to be able to do that every year and um I'm glad we're back live. 
definitely we we are not going to be getting too too many more uh, bites at the apple with with Warren and Charlie uh, up at the helm so so it's it's great to um, sort of make make the trip to omaha and see uh, see everybody and and so on so i'm i'm delighted to have you here today because uh, a lot of us don't follow berkshire as closely as you do and so uh, before the meeting on saturday uh, if if we can uh, get get together with an expert like you and understand the core uh, things about berkshire's business model and so on uh, that that's that's just great so uh, so so you you run this fund called uh, semper augustus uh, can you quickly explain to us what semper augustus means and why did you choose to name the fund that way well back in in the late 90s those really that lived in the value camp um, had a sense that there was a bubble. I mean, there was clearly a bubble in tech stocks by the end. The, the, the big blue chips were very expensive in 98, trading at 40 and 50 and 60 times. Kind of, I call that the, 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 the then new iteration of the nifty 50. The big blue chips rolled over, but you had the tech, tech bubble that raged throughout 1999 and into the first two and a half months of 2000, the NASDAQ was up 84 or 87%. And so starting the firm as we did in the fall of 98, I, I'd always been a fan and loved reading Kindleberger and Charles McKay. So Mania's Panics and Crashes and Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, two must reads for those that are listening that haven't discovered those gems, but I kind of harbored the name knowing I was going to start a firm at some point. Semper Augustus, loosely translated from Latin, is always majestic, but what it really refers to in, in our case was an acknowledgement that we were in a bubble and the, the Semper was the most inflated of the tulip bulbs in 1637 Holland. So one bulb would go for the equivalent of Oh, geez, in today's dollars, probably a million bucks. It would buy you a very nice flat uh, in Amsterdam. And, uh, you know, that was kind of one of the first manias on record. Some say it wasn't really a mania. I think there was certainly a boom in property and in trade. Um, the the Semper and the Semper Augustus and, and all of the, the, the tulip mania was a little more um, benign, I think, than, than the history, the historical archive uh, shows. But um, it, it was typical of a broad-based bubble in, in an economy, and obviously it burst, and you know, just like the tech bubble then burst starting in March of 2000. So uh, it, it works, and I always love it when somebody recognizes the name. It was great early on. There would be a few people. Kate Welling got it right away. There were a few that got it right away, but invariably people always ask the question, where'd the name come from? So now we've got right. a little of that story on the website Right. So t- today, with with that money, uh, the the amount of money that a tulip fetch, you 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 can buy a very nice uh, JPEG of a tulip. <laughs> exactly. Well, you, at least you could as of two or three weeks ago. Right. <laughs> well, uh, so you you are one of the foremost experts in in Berkshire Hathaway, right? Uh, every, every year, you, you follow the company assiduously. You write this wonderful letter. Uh, you, you read a, a lot of things that uh, Warren and Charlie put out and uh, and so on. Now, uh, how did you first become interested in, in Berkshire Hathaway? How long have you been following the company? And uh, how did you first become interested in it? And 
over the years as you've been following this company uh, what are some key things that you learned about this company where maybe it's different from uh, most other companies out there well first there are a lot of folks that have owned and followed berkshire for a long time um a lot of experts. I wouldn't hold myself out to be the, the, the foremost expert on the business. I've owned it since February 2000, bought it in the wake of the gen repurchase and really in that period when value was just getting decimated. Um, and owning it in the scale that I have now uh, since early 2000, you know, going on 22, 23 years, um, it focuses your attention when it's the largest holding in the portfolio and you know, spend a lot of time in the footnotes of anything we own. And I just think over the years, you pick up a lot of cumulative understanding about the business itself and the industries in which they compete. Didn't start following the company until 1996. So I got in the professional investing game in 91, right out of school. Uh, I'd done a thing in the commercial paper world in advance of that, but um, really went to work for a big bank trust company in, in Kansas City. And lo and behold, we didn't follow it. It wasn't on the working list. It didn't even have an, uh, a file in the in the research library. But when the B shares were offered in 1996, my now business partner Chad uh, and my now deceased former father-in-law um, both were interested in the stock. My father-in-law lived in Omaha. Chad was a voracious uh, student of the markets, even though he was doing public audit. And so I dug in and I sent, I sent out for three annual reports and the cues called Omaha. They sent them to me, um, got a copy of the prospectus uh, for the share class and agreed with the nomenclature on page one of the disclosure, which was pretty extraordinary that Mr. Buffett said that neither he nor his vice chairman, Charlie Munger, would buy the stock, they found it too expensive. Those B shares were offered to really thwart a group that was going to set up a unit trust to effectively create a, a lower price per share class of Berkshire shares. At that point, the A so shares. This was the 1996 equivalent of uh, uh, Tesla's too expensive IMO. Yeah, you know, the stock price was beyond $10,000, which was the amount of money that you could give uh, a gift away for estate tax purposes and not offset the size of your taxable estate at death. Um, and with the stock price north of that, it, it got to be cumbersome. And so this group was going to create a new class, but charge 3% to do so. And I think Mr. Buffett felt that to pay anything to own his shares other than to be able to buy them from your broker dealer um, was outrageous and it was outrageous. And so for that, he acquiesced and created the, the B-class structure. And they've split that in in subsequent years to try to keep the price per share viable and, and down at a low level. But the A-shares have obviously not split. So I've, right. yeah, but, it, but you know, I, I followed it and waited really until that, uh, the, again, the stock got cut in half. Nobody wanted to own conventional businesses. Insurance was going begging um, I think the Genry shareholders didn't know what to do with it. There wasn't a lot of coverage on Wall Street, and everybody wanted to chase the shiny things that were tech and the tech bubble. And so uh, Berkshire just dro dropped from what was almost three times book, uh, having used the shares to buy Genry, 
diversified the stock portfolio, but they cut it in half. It traded at over $80,000 when they did the deal. And our cost in it was $43,707. The seven representing the, the nominal commission brokers never liked, uh, never liked our trading in the stock when commissions were a thing because everybody was charging you a few cents per share and you're buying a very high price stock. Uh, in any right, event, right. paid. I think our, our I think our purchase price averaged about a hundred and five percent of book value at the time. So we got in at a really good time, and I think our history of owning it over all the years and decades, even we've been pretty opportunistic with new clients. You mentioned that we run a fund. We do run a partnership account, but the majority of our our client base is separate accounts. And so we've always got cash flows coming in. I've got dividends that come in, any proceeds from security sales, deposits. And I think we've done a very good job buying Berkshire over the years when it's been very undervalued. It's spent the majority of really all of that period uh, trading for less than what I'd call the intrinsic value of the business. Um, it, and, and, and at times it's been very, very cheap and, and we've been able to capitalize on that. So over all those years, I've just developed an understanding of the business and really at the point in 2015, when I wanted to articulate how I valued the business and all the methods that I used to reconcile against each other, that right. really forced the concentration even more. And now I've made it a fixture of my annual letter. At some point, it's p- parts of that letter have become repetitive. I'm really updating the model. Spends, I spend six to seven weeks with the annual letter. And one week of that, typically five, six, seven days, I spend really just updating all of my models. And once I've done that work, I really don't have to work on Berkshire for the rest of the year because it's a carrier. It's a battleship. It's so diversified in terms of its streams of income right. that it doesn't require much maintenance other than obviously you're going to read the Qs and the the F filings and any any acquisitions or deals that take place, changes in the stock portfolio. But don't have to do much heavy lifting and it really becomes an annual maintenance project because my process for valuation is normalization process. And I I don't have to, I don't have to make a lot of changes when Berkshire buys offers to buy an Allegheny or they put a bunch of money in Occidental or do various deals. Um, It's very, very kind of easy maintenance once the analyst of Berkshire and the follower has become initiated as to how the business works. Right, exactly. So uh, you you have a uh, you refer to the cumulative understanding that you you've built up on Berkshire over the years, and it's uh, it's a maintenance project for you because you already understand the company so well. Uh, but if you if you look at somebody who's just uh, maybe getting into understanding Berkshire today, uh, it's not a simple company to understand. It's not a simple business. It's got so many subsidiaries distributed across a large number of different industries. They all have different economic characteristics and so on. Uh, so if someone wants to start uh, to get a good understanding of Berkshire today, uh, how would you advise them to go about uh, trying to get this understanding? There are a million books on Berkshire and on Warren Buffett and on Charlie Munger. A lot of them are absolutely terrific. Adam Mead's latest uh, book that I had the privilege of writing the forward to, Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway, is a great reference tool and provides some history and color. To me, if you really want to understand Berkshire 
And you really want to understand what matters in investing. There's no better source than the the chairman's letters themselves. Um, on the on the Berkshire website, you can download and read the history of letters back to 1977. And they're just so chock full of great information on Berkshire when they're doing deals, color on those deals, but also just how to think and how to approach capital. Um, I think, uh, you know, for anybody interested in, in the valuation of the business, I would. I'd, I'd steer you toward my website and my last six or seven letters get into some you know great detail on some of the nuances of how taxes work in the business and how accounting is treated and some overview on the different big moving parts and subsidiaries. And then I think if you're, you know, you're Berkshire shareholder and you're an analyst of the business, you have to follow the industry. And so you wind up following all of the competitors and there's so many different streams of profitability and in, in industries in which Berkshire com- competes that you're going to follow all the rails. You're going to follow all the big insurance operations in the various lines you're going to follow the electric utility industry. And a lot of, a lot of that heavy lifting and work I'd done already in advance because as a generalist, I'd, I'd been doing this for a number of years and continue to kind of increase the circle of competence. Uh, although I think my circle of competence gets narrow every year. I think the accumulative knowledge and understanding of different industries and businesses just grows. And so it's, it's all an ongoing process. I, it's something you wouldn't, the, the uninitiated to Berkshire won't, won't get it overnight. There's just too much to it. And there's enough out there to kind of take you as deep as you want to go. You could, you know, really just stick with the chairman's letters and have a sense at the end of the day, if you're not a financial professional, you'll understand at, at a point that there's so much integrity and so much morality and so much, um, gearing of how they think and operate to the betterment of, of the shareholder and all of their constituents that you've heard Mr. Buffett say over the years, I mean, it boils down to a trust factor and you've got 57 or 58 years now of cumulative trust developed and you just got to trust the people that are running the business. And if you want to go deeper and drill into the numbers, you can go as deep as you want. And those, those references that I've mentioned and plus all the books that are written, uh, yes, absolutely. I, I, I love Adam Mead's book too. It's it's such a comprehensive book about uh, the the entire history of Berkshire from from when it was a small textile company uh, all, all the way up to today, where it is this giant conglomerate. And I also second this recommendation to read all the all of Buffett's letters over the years. Uh, in fact, I, I'm a computer scientist. I, I did not have uh, any formal training or. Uh, uh, anything like that on business or investing or anything like that. So mo- most of the fundamental concepts that I learned, uh, they, they originated in uh, one of Buffett's letters. So simple things like the the difference between earnings and cash flows, and um, you know the, the the whole idea of owner earnings. How much can a business owner take away from a business? And simply what what makes a wonderful business? So if you if you just go through a bunch of financial statements, what is a wonderful business and what is not a wonderful business? How do you tell that from the financial statements? So all all of this. I learned from Buffett's letters, and I'm I'm so glad that he he wrote them, and uh, so he he's so selfless about teaching uh, the the fundamentals to to everybody, and I, I I really benefited a lot from those letters, and I encourage everyone on the call to also go and read read the letters. 
I think the, you're right. I mean, to your point and, and to your background, you don't have to have formal training in finance. You don't have to have formal training in security analysis to get this. You don't need a CFA designation to be uh, to learn about investing and become a great investor. You really have to just kind of plot and, and, and read and read and read. And, you know, if you start in 1977 and, and, and progressively move forward year by year, you'll have, you'll have picked up the investment equivalent of an MBA by the time you're through that process. And if you read those letters a couple, three times over a lifetime, or you use them as reference material and you know where to go look. And if you want to look up a deal or something that Mr. Buffett has said about some con- convention in accounting. Larry Cunningham's books are also terrific. He's got the essays of Warren Buffett, which is effectively a cut and paste uh, compilation of pulling out various subject matter by theme. So right. on, on the subject of, of stock options and employee compensation, um, you've got a, you've got several pages there of pretty much everything that was written in the various letters that, that was meaningful on the subject. And I, I, I found Larry's books, which have been updated several times to be of immense value over the years. Definitely. And if you, if you get, uh, I believe Max Olson's book yeah. takes you back to, you, you can get the letters right back to 1965, right? Yeah. The problem with Max's book and it's wonderful is if you get it in the hardback copy and you try to lay in bed and read it at night, it weighs about 98,000 pounds and it will, it will, it will definitely leave a crease in your chest when you're trying to read it. I think there's, I, I know he's got a paperback version, but like Adam's book, it's a, it, 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 it's a monster. Thank, thankfully, I got the iPad version. So. <laughs> uh, back in the day, um, for my, my initiation to the letters, there was always an offer in the annual letter if you would send a self again. Was I think it was self addressed, uh, self addressed stamped postage. Maybe they even paid for it. I don't remember. But they used to take those letters beginning in 1977. And they had a couple editions, and then they had them broken down in three editions. And they started adding successive years. And simply, in terms of ease of reading, you had three paperback-bound copies of the chairman's letters instead of one giant amalgamation. But that's no longer a thing. Right, right. Um, so so uh, you can say that insurance is the, is the bread and butter of Berkshire, right? Uh, so Berkshire started out as a textile company, but very soon, uh, one, once Buffett realized that he can't pull out any cash out of the textile business, he started looking for better businesses to buy and so on. And he found insurance. And uh, so, so today, Berkshire is a giant insurance and reinsurance behemoth. Uh, but the thing with insurance companies is that they are super hard to understand. You, you can have an insurance company report consistent profits for 10 straight years. But then in the 11th year, if some huge risk happens, especially for a reinsurance company, if there's a big hurricane or a big earthquake or a terrorist attack or something like that in the 11th year, that 11th year, uh, the losses could wipe out the previous 10 years of profits. It's something like Nassim Talib's uh, Turkey. For 364 days of the year, the turkey is well-fed and happy and so on. But then uh, on the day before Thanksgiving, uh, the hammer falls and uh, the, the, the turkey is slaughtered. Uh, so if, if we are going through an insurance company, 
uh, if you want to understand whether an insurance company is run prudently or whether it's just this uh, turkey that is going to be slaughtered, uh, how exactly do we do that? If we take an insurance company, how, how do we understand whether it is being run prudently or not? Just a record of profits is not enough if they are taking huge risks, right? And uh, would you say that Berkshire is run prudently? And uh, how, how would you come to that conclusion? Insurance is a terrible, really awful industry, in my opinion. Uh, I, I don't like life insurance at all. I think the nuance with most lines of insurance boils down to the, the length of the tail. Um, you know, an auto insurance policy uh, reprices every six months or every year. Uh, your long history of assessing auto claims and, and where your liabilities get paid is pretty straightforward. It's hard to screw up auto too much because it is so short tail in nature. You wreck right. a car, you're going to get it fixed right away at the body shop. If you have an inflationary period like you have today where used car prices, if you've got to replace a car and a total loss are very high, if your labor costs to fix a car are high, about two-thirds of an auto policy gets paid out in the first year, another 20% by year two. And then that last two or three years, it's mostly all gone at five. You start to get into medical and you start to get in, into lawsuits. And so you have legal insurance. But generally, if you've got a good relationship with your state insurance commissioners, you can reprice that line pretty quickly. You get into longer tail and it can be reinsurance and it can just be straight property, let's say lines or specialty lines if you're writing if you're writing workers comp if you're writing med mal you, you know your various property lines where you wound up with asbestos issues you wound up getting paid so little money up front and all of a sudden these liabilities never went away they were billions and billions of dollars of risk more than you thought were even plausible you saw GE blow up their insurance operations um, by being very aggressive in terms of their assumptions, uh, kind of into care life, uh, retirement home costs ballooned and skyrocketed. And so you, know, you paid a small premium up front and the ultimate loss costs, the ultimate costs of, of, of putting somebody in a, a senior assisted living facility were so much higher than they than they bargained for up front. So for the again for the uninitiated it's not a great business. Overall property casualty insurance and reinsurance is pretty lousy business. Um you've really got to spend a lot of time with it to understand the accounting and you're exactly right. You can clip along if you're writing if you're writing hurricane risk and you have a bunch of years with no storms and all of a sudden you get a year or two years You've got to look at the entire history of how various companies have fared during those periods, and you're right. You can have you can be writing at an underwriting profit margin of forty percent for a decade, and then all of a sudden blow the firm up, and you've got to recapitalize. You look at the big European reinsurance companies, Swiss Re, Munich Re. They're right. horrible businesses. You know, they're they modestly profitable on an underwriting basis, and then every decade. They've got to recapitalize. So you want to look at the share count. You want to look at when new capital is required in the business to stay alive. Berkshire's such a unique entity that in this world of mediocre 
uh, a mediocre industry, given its just massive levels of capital that, that exist underneath the operation, it's really an investment operation less than an underwriting operation. So much more of Berkshire's insurance profitability comes from the stock portfolio versus how well it underwrites that the underwriting side of that profitability can be an afterthought. And that's absolutely not the case with any other insurance operation on the planet. There are some phenomenal and and some good uh, auto insurers that we've owned and own. Uh, We're going to lose Allegheny thanks to Berkshire's acquisition announcement here. We're past the 25 day go shop period. So we're going to lose a 2% position you know, now about a two and a half percent position in, in a terrific insurance operation run by Weston Hicks, who just retired. Now Joe Brandon, that brings Joe in as a potential successor to Mr. Buffett. But that was a $7 billion premium business where Berkshire writes $70 billion across its various lines. And on a 22 or $23 billion investment portfolio, which will get rolled into Berkshire's 350 billion stock portfolio and close to 500 billion dollar marketable securities portfolio in the insurance operations. Um, it's a rounding error. So we lose a, a, a very well-run little insurer that was going to earn 10 or 11 on equity, pretty durably. That was building out a nice portfolio of wholly owned businesses, and that's now gone. But uh, so th- there's not much. I mean, these these cats that have gotten into the insurance game thinking that the leverage you get from collecting premium dollars and and having float to invest, it's a way harder game. And you've seen some of the hedge funds that have done it. You've seen some of the exotic types of insurance that have come into the game, cat bonds, insurance linked securities, but then the various operators that thought they could be the next Buffett have just generally had their heads handed to them. It's not a great business. If you want to own an insurance company, essentially, you own Berkshire. I mean, I would I would steer anybody to say uh, it's 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 best in class. It's it's not it's not even close. There's not even a close second across the lines that they write. And so right. I think generally. So, so the two reasons that you gave were so so the first reason is that um, if you, if you look at a business like Geico and auto insurance and things like that, they are short tail. So in 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 the insurance business, generally a short tail. Uh, uh, insurance contract is better than uh, uh, having a large bunch of long tail reinsurance, uh, long tail insurance contracts. And the second um, reason that you gave was uh, for Berkshire in particular, the the portfolio, uh, the the stock portfolio and the earnings from that, because Berkshire has so much of capital, it can take the insurance float and invest it in stocks and things like that. Whereas other insurance companies, they have to have a significant portion uh, of their float invested in uh, uh, bonds and so on, wh- which don't return as much. Is, is my understanding correct of, of the, two, the, the two reasons why Berkshire is a better insurance company than others, maybe? I think so. I think, I think those two dual advantages, they're just unrivaled that across Berkshire's competitors. They, n- nobody else can do it the way they do it. The, the, the Allegheny portfolio of the 22 or $23 billion, Western had $3.5 billion invested in stocks, you know, 70% in various fixed income. Berkshire's going to take that portfolio and be able to run it 70% in stocks. And so at the margin, if you generate a total return on your equity portfolio of 10% versus the majority of your portfolio at 4% in a fixed income, Right. It's just it's that that alone's worth six hundred million dollars. The delta on what Berkshire can earn from the common stock portfolio, 
And really, Berkshire's proven to be a great underwriter over time. They've been consistently profitable for most of the last 15 years. The 70s were a tough period, an inflationary period. You know, if this inflation we're in now proves durable, there will be issues in terms of lost costs and some of your longer tail lines uh, or could really become problematic. Berkshire writes these one-off occasionally, these big retroactive policies, and they write some periodic payment annuity business, which are capped to loss, but the use of the investment capital in the float over time, if your loss tail develops badly and inflation erodes the rate at which you pay your losses out up to the cap, right. the use of the float in that case becomes less ad, less advantageous. Um, you know, I think taking longer tail risk, Berkshire has plenty of longer tail risk, but if you think about where the profitability comes from, it comes from the stock portfolio. On a $350 billion stock portfolio, I've got them earning basically an earnings yield of a little over 5%, which means the PE multiple was just under 20. It was about 19 and a half at year end. So on that $350 billion, you've got, call it 5 billion coming in as a dividend. Right. And you've you've got another 12, let's call it, of retained earnings that get reinvested back in the Apples and the Coca-Colas and the Bank of Americas. Right. And you have very little yield coming from T-bills, that, that that will come. But on $70 billion in premium, if Berkshire does 5% pre-tax, which is kind of what I peg, that's $3.5 billion in pre-tax underwriting profit compared to 17 if they simply earn the earnings yield. If the stock portfolio does 10% a year, double the earnings yield, and you've got $34 billion in profitability, which is 10x what they're earning on a pre-tax basis underwriting insurance. And so they don't, even, they don't even have to be great. But I think because of that surplus capital, they're in a position to not write business when it's fundamentally overpriced. And very few of their competitors are willing to walk away from an insurance policy that's badly priced. You know, it's one thing to, to try to grow your market share in auto and get your head handed to you because you've Tesla may wind up learning this lesson here very quickly if they really do roll out uh, as an underwriter. It's a very tough game. But again, if you've got favorable regulatory climate, you can reprice quickly. That's one thing. But when you misprice a long tail or you misprice a hurricane or a natural disaster, you can blow the whole place up. I think most places in insurance are so poor and so mediocre and so commoditized with so much competition that because you lean heavily on the underwriting leg of the stool and not as much on the, on the investment leg of the stool, because you're constrained to your point to having a bond portfolio, you just wind up with mediocrity. And that's kind of the reason why I think that by Shelby Davis and Chris Davis and those guys have done so well owning insurance is because it's such a mediocre industry it tends to trade at a very cheap price. You know, if, you, if you're going to earn 10 on equity and buy insurance companies at less than book, you can make more than 10% a year buying okay businesses because they're just inexpensive most of the time because they're crappy companies. Um, so I, you know, you know, unless you really know what you're doing, I'd steer clear of the industry. And if you're going to try to play the game, you better find the ones that are cheap and the ones that are prudential on uh, conservatism and underwriting. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All, all wonderful points. 
so we we touched there a little bit about uh, the valuation for for Berkshire. So we, we talked about how much the stock portfolio is worth and how much you can expect to earn on the stock portfolio and, and things like that. And if we go through your uh, annual letter, uh, you, you have a, a section there on how to value Berkshire, various approaches for valuing Berkshire. So uh, one, one simple approach is just take the price to book and um, you, you take the book value per share of Berkshire and then apply a reasonable multiple to it, like 1.3 times book or something like that, uh, and you get a value for Berkshire. And Warren Buffett, when he first, uh, or, or no, 10 years ago when he announced a buyback for Berkshire, he said he will pay up to 1.1 times book for Berkshire. Uh, but then he quickly increased that to 1.2 times book. But then in, in recent years, uh, Buffett, seems to think that book value is no longer as relevant as it was in the past. And so uh, these days he's buying back shares uh, at well above the 1.2 times book and so on. So uh, if, if you had to value Berkshire, uh, to, to what extent is a multiple of book or price to book, to what extent is that still a good indicator? And how would you value Berkshire on a, on a price to book basis if you had to do it today? I think there's still considerable utility to Berkshire's book value, their shareholders equity as a proxy for value. Um, I, I think it's absolutely correct to infer that as time passes, it will lose some utility. I think the 120% multiple to book was really a statement about opportunity cost if Berkshire can er durably earn 10% on equity, which is conservative, very conservative, the way I do the math, there's some, there's some kind of hidden sources of profitability and even some that I'm very conservative in my appraisal on that get me to more than what I carry as $48 billion in, in current run rate profitability. But that, 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 that floor, the ceiling rather, above which he'd originally said he wouldn't buy shares, on a 10 ROE, if you adjust it for a 20% premium to that number, that's an 8.33% earnings yield. Um, I think the point being that Berkshire is all about opportunity cost when they put capital to work, whether it's in Allegheny or whether it's an Occidental, whether it's the upcoming uh, increase in their position in Pilot Flying J, whether it's the repurchase of shares, they're always measuring what you can do at the moment with capital on an earnings and an earnings yield basis and, and prospective earnings yield basis. The point about book value losing some utility, and you've, you see it enormously diminished at a lot of companies. You've got old assets that are fully depreciated that don't require a lot of CapEx. Uh, back in the day before, I think it was 2002, when you put depreciation on the books in an acquisition, you were writing it off over a period of 40 years. So book value up to that point was getting written down. Now we put more. So that's uh, the in. goodwill, right? The goodwill component it, of the acquisition it, being written down over time. Yeah. And, and so you no longer write down goodwill. And so if you want to right. shrink, if you want to shrink the, uh, the equity base and the asset base to, to make your profitability look better and, and not, and not that this is necessarily a motivation, but you see a lot more other intangibles put on the balance sheet in an acquisition now. And some of those intangibles are amortized and some of those are not. But either way, you're, you're, you're shrinking the book value and the book value per share, 
with repurchases being such a big thing for the broad stock market, less so until recently in Berkshire's case. When you're buying back shares to your point at a premium to book, the larger the premium, the more you're going to shrink the book value and then ergo the book value per share. And so with Berkshire's willingness to pay more than book or one to one to book or 1.2 to book, you're sitting here at almost one and a half today. And my guess is the cadence of repurchases have slowed, uh, maybe have stopped for the time being. We'll see. We'll learn a lot more here um, at the annual and, and, and the quarterly filing about where we stand. But if Berkshire is going to durably repurchase at a premium, they're going to shrink book and book value. But you look at the big moving subsidiaries, the big moving parts, book value is very material and it's, it's, it's essential uh, to calculate your, your capital, your surplus capital in an insurance operation. Equity book value is the measure against which utilities set price. You're allowed to earn a return on equity an allowed return on equity. So you've got to know what that number is. It's still a material thing in a railroad. Um, Berkshire's equity doesn't change much in the railroad because since they bought it, 100% of profits have been steered to the parent. And so the equity balance doesn't change much because you have no retained earnings each year. Um, so I, to me, there's utility. I My valuation, I run it at... Um, 175% a book, which if you run it on that same premium to book value, the math I did on the 120% gets you down to eight and change on an earnings yield at 175 on a 10 hour week, gets you down to almost 6%, call it 5.7 or 5.8% on an adjusted earnings yield. And that would be kind of my full multiple, which would equate to the stock trading at 18 times what I call normalized economic earnings. Um, right. And it, again, so, it, 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 it'll, it'll lose utility over time, but I still think it's for the, you know, as a reconciling tool or for the, the novice investor that wants to own Berkshire periodically, just buy it at the, che- the cheapest multiple to book that you can. And book value is going to change, obviously, with a $350 million stock portfolio. You get a big market sell off. I carry the portfolio at a $50 billion discount to its market value here at quarter end uh, portfolio. Sh- and I, I haven't even looked at exactly what the stocks did for the quarter, but I know on March 31, so is, generally... is that because you think Apple at current prices is overvalued or is it some other company that you think is overvalued in the portfolio? Well, Apple's half the portfolio and right. at 30 times, I think it's just a little ahead of itself. So yeah, most of that, most of that comes back on the Apple valuation in the bank's okay. trade. At, at single digits, and as long as you don't have a bad recession where they blow up their capital, the banks are fine. Yeah, I think I think I'd I'd mark the apple down, but I think to okay. sell it and pay twenty one percent capital gain, they did sell a big chunk of it and took their basis down from thirty six billion dollar investment down to thirty one. So they sold I don't know fifteen percent of the position, more more than ten percent of the position certainly, a couple of years ago, and finally decided yeah it's a good enough business, it's probably going to grow fast enough that at 30 to earnings, the stock is two or three years ahead of itself, as long as the growth rate persists kind of in the mid to high single digits. And you'd rather grow into the valuation than send a giant check to Uncle Sam. Right, exactly. So uh, of Berkshire's $350 billion portfolio, you take the portfolio as if it were 
only worth $300 billion because you apply a $50 billion discount to it, right? In, in your valuation. Correct. Okay. And, and then, and then, and then oh, sure. a nuance from a book value standpoint with a hundred billion, let's call it cost basis on the portfolio and an unrealized gain of 250%, you've got a 21% deferred tax liability that sits on the balance sheet. So when the stock portfolio right. goes up in price, it's offset by 21% of the gain, which also happens to mute the gain or, or the losses, obviously, when the portfolio shrinks in price. But, but, but that would be your balance sheet approach to valuation. Um, and right. I, I'm, I'm simply taking top line, non-tax adjusted market and value. So, so you yeah. uh, remark that uh, Berkshire earning uh, on a normalized basis, you think Berkshire would earn about uh, $47, $48 billion a year uh, at, at the moment. So how do you arrive at that normalized earnings for Berkshire? What are the components that make up the, the 48 billion uh, per year in uh, earning power? You, you can really do it two ways. And I use, I use the two methods simply to reconcile against each other. Um, one, you take the sum of the okay. parts of where, where profitability is derived, how much comes from the energy operation, BHE, how much comes from the railroad how much comes from their amalgamation of manufacturing service, retail and finance businesses, where the profitability comes from in the insurance operation. And I talked a little bit about that a minute ago. And then you've got some earning power on some net assets that are held at the holding company. When you go through that sum of the parts method approach, I get to about 48 billion. And the other way to do it is to simply start with Berkshire's gap earnings, as released and do what I think anybody that has understood Berkshire forever would do. And that's peel back and, and eliminate any realized and unrealized capital gains on the investment portfolio until a couple three years ago, uh, only realized gains would flow through the income statement. Uh, and obviously any, any unrealized gains and losses plus realized gains and losses would flow through the balance sheet net of any deferred tax liability at whatever the rate was. The rate changed from 35% to 21%. But if you're going to strip out the short-term noise that comes from the stock portfolio going up and down, you've got to figure out what the portfolio is going to earn over time. And for that, you have your dividends. But you've got now you've eliminated the retained earnings. And so you've got to take the retained earnings of all of the investees, the Apple, the Cokes, the Bank of America's, like I say, and on that number, I get to about $12 billion that you've got to put back in after you've taken out whatever they are in the short term. So if Berkshire reports $90 billion last year in earnings, a huge chunk of that came from the stock portfolio being up 30%. Well, they're not going to make 30% on average every year. They're not Kathy Wood. Um, they're, going to make, they're going to make whatever they make. And if you look at it using my method, you're only presuming about a 5%, 5.5% earning power from the stock portfolio. Again, if you think the if you think the portfolio will do better than five per year, if you call it 10, you're going to have to add $17 billion pre-tax to my $48 billion, if that makes sense. I mean, that's a big delta. And I think that's why you've seen here for the last 10 years, 20 years, Berkshire, now that they've had a couple of good years back to back with the stock, is ahead of the S&P 500 for most periods, almost all periods. In fact, if Berkshire outperforms the market by 5% from where we are today, there will be no yearly period all the way back to inception where Berkshire is underperformed. 
that's driven by short-term recent outperformance. The stock is up this year. The market's down a bunch, beat right. the market by a couple points last year, so on and so forth. The other, the other normalizing technique that I use is strip out whatever Berkshire reports as underwriting profit. And so okay. you would do that if you presume a 0% underwriting margin over time or a combined ratio at 100 the okay. combination of operating costs and loss costs. Um, I, I, I think the collection of insurance operations that they have and a low interest rate, I'll, I'll be at rising now for the, at least some period. I think they make 5% pre-tax and that, that gets me to that three and a half billion dollars in pre-tax profit. So I would strip out whether they make 10% in a year, whether they lose 10%. I take the short-term noise out and normalize it at five any, the analysts can do whatever they want with it. If they want to assume they're only going to make 2%, great. If you want to make assume they're going to make zero, great. I don't think Berkshire's operations will underwrite at an underwriting loss persistently, but right. you know, call that number what it is. I also take a portion. I take 90% of uh, the amortization of other intangibles. Um, I had taken 80 uh, Mr. Buffett has raised that and just assumed that all intangibles now, the amortization of those intangibles, really is economic profit. Uh, so I'm 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 10 percent more conservative there, but that adds about a billion dollars, a little over a billion dollars to the to the gap earnings number on an annual basis. A big, right. a, a fairly sizable adjustment that I make is an assumption that all of the cash nearly $150 billion in cash, that a portion of that cash will be put to work at some right. point in the intermediate term. And so the hurdle rate in my mind at Berkshire is still at least 10%. If you've got all of your cash earning nothing in T-bills, as was the case, you know, five, 10 basis points for the much of the last two years, for much of the period following the financial crisis, until the Fed tries to tried to raise rates a few times, you're getting nothing. I I, I assume they're going to make seven percent on about half of the cash. The portion that I back out are the thirty billion dollars that Mr. Buffett says will always be held on hand. I augment that by also assuming that every dollar of insurance losses paid in cash every year will also be held as a portion of insurance company capital. You've only got okay. about 16 or $17 billion in bonds in the Berkshire insurance operation. Again, way different than anybody else would, would run that operation. But then you've got about $90 billion in cash held in the insurance operation. And so in all, I'm going to take the $30 billion that's effectively cash cash at the holding company. And maybe I'm being conservative here by adding in a full additional $42 billion at current run rate, but I assume $72 billion is probably the long-term cash balance on hand. And so leaving a little more than half of the current cash available for investment. So if you take, okay. if you take so 70 if you billion, have $144 billion of cash or something like that, that that's what they reported. And you back out 72 billion because uh, you assume that 72 billion of that 144 billion is not investable. Then, then you're left with something like $70 billion of cash. And uh, you're saying that the hurdle rate on that cash for Berkshire is 10%. Whereas you are assuming that they will earn 7% on the cash. 
So what's the difference between the the 7% and the 10%? Where does that come from? Is that just because the cash is not going to be invested right away, but over time? Yeah, exactly. It's time. It's a time value of money concept. It's, it's okay. Perfect. It's, it's, they're not going to spend it all on day one. Now, when they buy Allegheny for $11.6 billion, right. And they re they reconfigure the investment portfolio and they eliminate the debt in the capital structure and they do some of the things they're going to do with that operation, Berkshire's buying Allegheny for less than 10 times earnings. So they've got more than a 10% earnings yield. When that deal closes, if you've paid 11.6, and let's just say they're going to make a billion dollars in profitability, a little over a billion dollars, I don't do a thing to my normalized earnings number, even though they've just financed, they're going to finance that purchase with cash. So I'm not assuming that Berkshire goes from earning zero on T-bills to all of a sudden earning 10, let's call it, on Allegheny, and all of a sudden a magic new billion dollars reappears that would get capitalized at 18 times earnings, let's say. So you're not going to, Berkshire is not magically worth $18 billion. If you were to take all of the cash and assume they were able to put it to work at 10%, let's say. $15 billion in profitability, you're not going to then capitalize that at 15 times earnings or 18 times earnings. You know, you're not magically coming up with another $50 billion or $100 billion in Berkshire value. So those right. that argue with my approach, I think, fail to understand. It really is just normalizing the, the ebbs and the flows of when that money gets put to work. And so I take 7% right. minus whatever the T-bill rate is. So if at the end of this year, the bill rate is 2%, I'm only going to give them a net 5% pre-tax earnings on my 70 plus billion that I think is deployable. If all so that why kind of do you subtract out the T-bill rate? Well, they're actually getting it as cash. I mean, they're 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 actually getting whatever, oh, right, whatever right, right. yield okay. on, on cash. And so I'm not I'm not going to double count because now all of a sudden they're actually getting on 150 billion at, at 2%. Right. You're getting 3% pre-tax and T-bill income that did not exist a year ago when interest rates were 0%. Again, Berkshire's not magically more valuable. Their reported income, because now you've got $3 billion in income, is higher, but I'm not going to recapitalize Berkshire at some higher number because the government now sees fit to pay some interest on their treasury debt. Right. But but if uh, Buffett, Mr. Buffett decides to do an investment like Apple and uh, it turns out that he earns far more than the 7% that we conservatively assumed uh, minus the T-bill rate. Then uh, would you revise that estimate upward or would you just leave it as it is? That's where I'm saying the retained earnings portion of Berkshire's profitability, Right. the $12 billion is, is a proportion of my $48 billion. Right. I'm a, quarter, a quarter of Berkshire's profitability comes from the retained earnings of that portfolio. And if you get accretion on Apple or any of the other holdings north of a 5% total return, um, you're going to earn more. And again, that's why Berkshire has earned more than 10% per year now for the last you know, 23 years since they bought Gen Re. They had to work off an overvalued stock portfolio. The stock portfolio has compounded at a now single digit return, about 8% a year, because it started off at a very inflated level. But 
incrementally here in the last few years. Yes, the yeah, the stock portfolio has has posted very high returns. So the assets of the firm, the book value of the firm have grown. That gets ultimately reflected in the uh, ultimately gets reflected in the stock price. Um, I think the way we account for profitability under GAAP makes perfect sense in that you are, I mean, Berkshire is eventually going to get whatever the stock portfolio posts in terms of total return, right? But we're, right. all we're trying to do is, is stripping out the short-term volatility that the government created by the, 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 the accounting standards created by mandating that, that the P&L be reflected uh, that the, the, they reflect the gains on the stock portfolio, but my forty-eight billion is very, very, very conservative. If Berkshire stock portfolio does more than five percent a year, right? Exactly. That 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 makes a lot of sense. Uh, and uh, so, so let me just ask one last question before we take questions from callers. So uh, the 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 question is this: uh, All companies must eventually die, right? And if we believe that all companies must eventually die, then we must believe that Berkshire also will will one day die. So what what are the main risks that are facing Berkshire today? And uh, if, if we if we fast forward 50 years into the future and do what is called a pre-mortem uh, and 50 years into the future, suppose Berkshire is dead. What killed Berkshire? What, what are the big uh, risks out there for Berkshire. Well, in 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 fifty years, I'm fifty three. Chris Bloomstrand is more likely than not dead. I certainly hope Warren and Charlie, you know, live beyond one hundred and three. Um, it, it, it's going to be really hard to kill Berkshire. Um, a lot of businesses do die. Um, there are some very front and center risks uh, that are not short tail, given Berkshire's diversified stream of profitability. You know, a recession would harm them, but there are there's some governance things um, that we're dealing with now and that are coming that are changing the landscape of how American business is conducted. If I look at my portfolio. I've got we own Richemont, and Mr. Rupert talks about being a guardian of some of these terrific brands that he owns and pretty sure the oldest brand that 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 is in that portfolio and really maybe one of the oldest companies that still exists even though now it's inside of a holding company is Vacheron Constantine which I know was founded in 1755 he's talked about that multiple times Cartier was founded in the mid 1800s um, and a couple other watch brands like Jaeger uh, go back prior to that. Um, even in even in our even in this country, I mean, Standard Oil goes back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, so early 1870s. AT and T with Alexander Graham Bell was 1870. So I think I, I think you know under proper stewardship, and if you don't have societal and currency and government collapse. If we're still operating under the same constitution in this country 50 years from now, I don't think there's a chance that Berkshire will get killed. Um, it might get regulated. Parts of it might get broken up by successive managements. I mean, you know, th think about that point. Bayer goes back to the mid-1800s. It goes back to the Civil War. German company 
you think about World War II, the period between World War One and World War II, you had hyperinflation that destroyed every dollar or every every mark in existence. It destroyed fixed income. The mark went from something like four to the dollar to four trillion to the dollar during a three or four year period of time. Bayer survived that. They survived the rise of the Nazi party and the commandeering of all of their assets and the entire industrial stock in Germany to finance the war effort. Bayer was owned by the Nazis. When Germany lost the war and 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 the Allies uh, uh, essentially took over these companies that the Germans had owned, and only a few years later did they find the, any original shareholders that would have existed and return the equity. Now, it was greatly diminished by very high inflation, by a world war, by a commandeering of the assets, by the Nazis, and then by the Allies, but there was still shareholder value that existed. And I look at the durability of where Berkshire's profitability comes from. We're not going to displace trains. I mean, that's just not going to happen. We're not going to, I mean, maybe if, you know, we colonize Mars and, you know, we have flying cars and, and, you know, you can, you can move everything that gets distributed by rail today, um, by flying trucks, maybe, but, you know, that, that ain't happening in, in my next 53 years. Um, I think the biggest risk that faces Berkshire is, 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 is what we've seen in Europe over the last 20 or 30 years. It's the rise of, of progressivism, which you're seeing manifested today in a lot of the vagaries of ESG, this environmental, social, and governance. Right. Uh, too many CEOs and executives that I talk to who loved their jobs as recently as three, four years ago are just besides themselves with the checkbox mentality and the current state of governance putting people on the board that have no business being on the board, proxy fights. We're going to, you know, we have four proxy initiatives coming up at the Berkshire meeting this weekend. And all four of those proposals are absurd. I mean, you've got front and center, a group called the national legal policy center that wants to separate the role of chairman and CEO at Berkshire Hathaway. And again, in most companies, it makes sense to do so. But here during Mr. Buffett's lifetime with his control position, as many shares and voting shares as he owns, it's absolutely insane. I tweeted a thing out on the guy that runs this thing, making $250,000 a year. He makes more money on an entity, a not-for-profit, that files a tax return, which is where these numbers come from, but he pays himself $250,000 on an entity that has annual revenues of $2.5 million and only a million dollars in investment assets. So 25% of the portfolio and 10% of the revenues of the, of the not-for-profit. You know, at $100,000 per chairman, CEO, and also per vice chairman, it's a 0.000001 and 0.000004, whatever it is, portion of the assets and the liabilities. And you won't find a business that's, that's better governed, that has more integrity, more morality, better conventions in terms of how the books are put together and and accounting is dealt with. You don't have a long litany and history of write-offs and write-downs. You don't have abusive shareholder compensation. You don't have any options that have ever been given away. No restricted shares have ever been given away. Ajit has bought every dollar of his stock. Charlie bought every dollar of his stock. Warren has bought every dollar. 
Gray Gables got an investment in BHE, the shares of Berkshire that he owns. He's paid cash for those shares. You don't have egregious behavior, but governance is a big thing. And the Berkshire meeting and the Berkshire proxy has always been used as a soapbox for lunatics, the lunatic fringe. You're getting it this year and with the climate proposals. You're getting it this year with the separation of CEO and CFO. CalPERS naturally is on board again. And in the absence of Mr. Buffett, who really his role now that he's functionally already stepped aside, functionally in all but title as CEO, with Greg and Ajit managing the operations, no more direct reports to Mr. Buffett. I mean, he, he has passed a lot of the operational baton, but he's front and center now on capital allocation. Right. But he's also front and center on culture. And to your question about 50 years from now, to me, the single biggest risk is governance and these lunatics come in and want to make change. You wind up with a lot of board members that don't understand the culture of Berkshire Hathaway. Years down the line, you, you wind up with a CEO uh, not as capable. I think Greg is exceedingly well qualified and has spent the last couple, three years getting his arms around all of the operating subsidiaries. I think putting processes in place to better the business, you saw the increased profitability through the lens of all the various manufacturing service retail businesses, not on a year over year comp against the pandemic, but against 2019, the returns on profitability, the returns on equity and capital in that group are at a multi-year high. And I think that's a reflection perhaps of some processes. So it's worth paying attention to who goes on the board. I think these with the with the sad loss of Walter Scott and uh, uh, the replacement with with his board position with Susie and with Chris Davis and then with the retirement uh, which which one of our directors retired Tom Murphy retired um, adding Wally Wheats to the board Wally's a long term shareholder he owns a lot of the stock himself his firm owns the stock. Um, you know, the, the, the roles of these folks is to, is to preserve the culture and make sure they continue to have good board people that understand Berkshire's culture and make sure that the people in the operating chairs at the holding company and of each of the subsidiaries are Berkshire people and fight like hell this crazy ESG train that's, that's barreling down the tracks. It's, you know, it, well-intentioned in a lot of places, but it's just being ridiculously applied and uh, it's the thing that, that gives me the most fits about the 50-year horizon for Berkshire, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 of which I'm hopefully I'm around for and, 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 and a major shareholder of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. That, that was a wonderful answer. Uh, so let's start taking some questions from, from callers. Uh, so the, the next caller is Casey. Yeah, hi, Tim K. Hi, Chris. Um, Chris, I believe you once wrote that it is important a person places a sizable enough position into a business initially because it may be mispriced for a short period of time and you'll miss the chance to build that position. Can you share with us, A, how you decide uh, what percentage of your portfolio you're willing to stake on an initial position? And B, as a percentage of your portfolio, portfolio, I know Berkshire is the largest stake, so you can exclude that. But in your 30 years of investing, um, 
what has been your evolving philosophy on allowing your winners to grow and take an outsized, outsized position um, of your portfolio before you size them down? Thanks, Casey. This is like the, the, the back-to-school Rodney Dangerfield question. The final exam will be asked in, in one question, but in 23 parts. So if I, if I miss a couple of those, circle back to me. Um, I, I, my thinking has evolved a bit um, to a degree. On initial position sizing, um, I was generally always trying to take a one percent, and if I really knew the business and it was it was cheap enough at the outset, I'd run it at five. When I bought Berkshire for the first time in February two thousand, I bought it at five ish, um, and, and and I've added to it again opportunistically. I've learned that. You tend to miss things uh, because I'm not buying things at intrinsic value. I'm buying them at a discount, and there there's too much competition out there. There are too many people that that do understand valuation yardsticks, and so you know I'm at least getting in two percent pretty quickly. I bought Dollar Tree in September, and thank God I did it when I did, because a couple three days after I got two percent of our capital in it, they changed their pricing. Uh, within the Dollar Tree concept, not the not, not not the family dollar concept, but by announcing a 25% increase from essentially breaking the buck, where everything in the store had cost a dollar for years, the 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 trend toward initiatives drove the stock immediately up 20, 30, 40%. Now, even in the short term, it's doubled in price from where it was when I bought it. So I don't like to. I really don't like to start with with much less than two now. I'll let positions get larger. What what I, I what I still like seeing is if I know a business and it's predictable enough in terms of earning power, is to see an earnings miss or to see an overall market sell-off where I can take position size up to three, four, five, six percent. Um, I'm gonna skew toward my smaller market caps and my smaller kind of non-diversified moats business streams. Um I've, I've always had small mid-cap names in the portfolio, not by design. I don't think in terms of market cap, but I'm going to err on the side of caution and in places where you get disrupted or where it's just simply a small business. I'm going to own those less in size. Um, and in Berkshire's case, my 13F filing gets gets skewed. And um, it, it, I think in a lot of cases, you got to be careful with those and that I've got, I, I own nine internationally headquartered companies, and I know only three of those does the SEC compel us to report on. So I've got a pretty good chunk of capital that doesn't exist on the 13F, which makes the Berkshire position look larger. It makes the positions, all the positions in the 13F look larger. And there are a number of holdings at the bottom of my 13F that I've never bought, but they're held in client accounts for tax reasons. If I have clients come in and they bring in a position that's that's large enough to compel reporting, but I've not bought it, and you know we may be in the in the process of liquidating it. It may show up on the 13F filing, um, but it's important. So in Berkshire, I never I try to get it at 20% of client capital. I've got some clients that restrict it to the below 20%, but I I've got a number that you know trade five to ten. 12 to 13, 14% at times. And some of that is a function of buying a lot of it, but generally it's a function of letting some of your winners run. The other thing I've learned is, and I wrote about this in one of my letters a few years ago, wrote about several of my biggest mistakes, but 
but having bought Roth stores at let's call it 10 times earnings when all of everything small mid cap was cheap and the tech bubble was raging, we made two and a half times our money. I sold the stock because I thought it was expensive and I could buy it back and I never bought it back and it was up 20x. So now with the exception of cyclicals, the energy businesses I have today, some commodity chemical exposure, the things that I know I'm going to buy at a price and sell at a price, but with really good businesses like Richemont and Starbucks and Nike and even Costco, uh, I've learned to not blow those out of a portfolio entirely by shrinking them in my non-taxable accounts, by taking Nike across the board down to uh, half a 1%. Half a 1% can't kill me. Um, and because it sits there in the portfolio when the stock trades down in price and I have cash and cash flows, deposits, proceeds from sales at, at the point where Nike is cheap enough. And I've been buying a little bit of it here recently. Um, I, I'll add to it. But if it's gone from the portfolio, I find myself anchored to some historic valuation, to some historic price. And it's just harder to get back in once you've completely gotten back out. Yeah, thanks for that. And then just real quick, um, do you have any examples where you had to average down multiple times and you feel like it really took some courage to do so? Well, a lot. Um, that, that's my preferred method of, of putting capital to work. Uh, Olin, I was materially adding to it in the teeth of the pandemic. And they had levered up the balance sheet when they bought a bunch of assets when Dow and DuPont merged from Dow. Uh, they had north of $4 billion. And not knowing how long the pandemic would last, I talked to management. They actually asked what I thought they ought to do. Um, I said, well, first, you got to draw down your lines of credit. But secondly, you're a dividend aristocrat, which makes no sense whatsoever for a cyclical company to be wed to a, some fixed payout rate. I said, cut the $120 million dividend down to a penny a share or whatever um, and save the $120 million. I mean, they were impaired from their ability to buy back shares. And I, I, I took it up to 4 to 5%. And only for, you know, the an abundance of caution um, did I not make it bigger. Um, and you had color on the fact that the Federal Reserve and, and the central banks globally were not going to let the system fail on that iteration. But it all happened so fast. But I at least got 4 to 5 in. I think the thing that I've done the best over the years is just the, through the risk management process and spending way more time on things that can go wrong versus things that can go right. When I've started with 1% or 2% and I think I've made a mistake, I am not quick to sell until I've confirmed that I'm wrong. And it's not just the share price that lends to confirmation of being wrong because if I think I'm right, I'm adding to a position as it gets cheaper in price, especially if it's it's not during a broad market decline, but again, on a short-term earnings miss or what have you. And so um, what I've done the best at, I think the best thing I've done is not adding to positions where I think I've got a problem. And so I've not compounded mistakes by throwing more and more capital at a declining price. And that, that ability to judge where you're, where you're right and where you could be wrong and not blow up a bunch of money on cases where you are eventually wrong. And you've got to then take a realized loss. That goes back to the definition of risk. It's not volatility, but it's permanent loss of capital. And, you know, if you govern your affairs under that premise that you just don't want to light money on fire, um, 
you really you sharpen the ability to to not chase. And it's 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 kind of contrary to what the bias is. Again, the bias is to get more money in, and you just have to have some kind of governance in your mind about knowing that you could be wrong and be, and, and and allowing yourself to know enough about yourself that you do make mistakes and you're going to make mistakes, but let's just try to minimize the damage. Makes sense. Thanks guys. Uh, thank you, Chris. That is such a wonderful point. So uh, e- even if you make a mistake as an investor uh, and over a period of time, you, you are bound to make mistakes. You have to make sure that the mistakes can't kill you so that you can live to fight another day. And that, that is really what position sizing is is all about. So th- thank you for explaining your, your your approach to it. That That's great. Uh, I know we've been going on for about an hour and a half. So um, there is a bunch of callers. So in, anytime you want to uh, get out, if, if you feel that you've gone on too long, just let me know. I'm good. I've got I've got at least uh, I'll give you another 30, 45 minutes or even more. Oh, perfect. Want. Oh, that that's lovely. Let's, let's take a question from uh, the, the next caller. Hear me. Hey, guys, can you uh, hear me? Yes. Great. Um, so, Chris, let's say the Allegheny uh, deal does close. What are your thoughts about Allegheny Capital specifically and the extent around um, these kind of niche base acquisitions that they can do for Berkshire, uh, whether it's a bolt-on acquisition or something that's just you know, uh, totally, totally different to Allegheny's business. Um, we kind of now have three or potentially could have three large subsidiaries, uh, PCP, Marmon, and Allegheny, which can do small uh, but meaningful bolt-on acquisitions for those specific companies, but they're really immaterial for Berkshire overall. I guess my question is, is does Omaha allow Allegheny capital to continue and operate independently from an M&A perspective? No, I think, uh, and Weston would confirm this, but um, just with all the money sloshing around in private equity and even these SPAC fools that at some point have to do a deal, it's really hard to pay a control premium for even small businesses. Um, You've arbitraged up the roll-ups of dental practices and multiples to cash flow across the board for anything are way higher now and it's taken the juice out of returns it was going to be really hard to grow that allegheny capital book which was about a billion three of allegheny's total nine billion in capital so no i think that that becomes the master function of omaha i i don't see a role for those businesses and in each of those companies the steel business and what have you um Jazzwares, they're all just going to get popped into uh, the MSR group and may get rolled up inside other companies or run them as a standalone inside MSR. But I, I think I think that that's now a function at the parent company level and not an Allegheny Capital specific function. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Chris. Uh, the next caller is Vinod. Vinod is a regular caller on the show. Hi, Trinke. Hi, Chris. Hope you can hear me. Yeah, we can hear you. Thank you. Um, Chris, I love your writing, especially uh, all your tweets uh, that presented with the numbers uh, in the 
uh, we see a lot of opinions and other things you stick to the point uh thanks for doing all these things and also i have a huge uh, backlog list of trading your uh, letters um, which i find it very uh, lengthy and also sometimes even a uh, bit difficult to understand as well so my question is basically uh, this is the one touched upon by 10k as well uh, for next uh, couple of decades uh, uh, one two three four decades um, with the size of where berkshire now and also capital at hand and uh, uh, the new section new the new team the next level team going to rent and this show uh, uh, the berkshire taking it forward uh, in next couple of decades do you think it still has this all merits to outperform the index um, over the long period of time and i just want to hear your thoughts on that thank you yeah i valuation price matters and with berkshire trading it now a mid teens multiple to what you'd call very conservatively stated economic earnings again as i calculate them um versus a stock market and i i got at the section in my letter this year that kind of demonstrated an attribution of where returns have come from for the s&p 500 over the last 10 years and for the 10 years leading up to the march 2000 peak uh and and how returns fared when you buy a market that has very high trailing returns like it did in 1999 18 plus percent returns came from massive profit margin expansion and multiple expansion uh sales growth per share which matched what we've just seen in the last 10 years um Berkshire's just very very undervalued both absolutely and relative to the market. And so I think I think the ability of of the new management team down the road and then the new management team after that really boils down to assuring that you've got best in class railroad best in class utilities the ability at the moment to spend a whole bunch of growth capex on renewable energy building out wind and solar and the grid that goes with it um you know we'll see how long that runway lasts but at the moment on a tax advantage basis it's a terrific use of capital you really other than this this incessant need by the journalistic and the analyst community and the berkshire watcher community that lament over this giant 150 billion dollars of cash that sits on the balance sheet relative to 950 billion dollars it's not that much and when you when you think about the role of capital allocation really what omaha has to do is 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 put the annual operating earnings to work if you strip out the 12 billion dollars of retained earnings in the common stock portfolio that's not at, at the helm of what goes on in omaha that's done by apple and it's done by coca-cola it's done by craft um it's not done by berkshire so you know you really have about 28 29 30 billion dollars plus any diminution of the cash balance to put to work and to the extent the share is cheap as it's been the ability to buy more than uh, to buy call it you know 25 and 27 billion dollars over the last couple of years and retiring shares for a slight discount to book up to what's now almost 150% is a terrific use of capital elephants are too expensive 
kind of to my point about the Allegheny question and, and Allegheny Capital. I think Markel's certainly has a, 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 the, the same high class problem of having you know what's now surplus capital on the balance sheet where they can invest outside of the insurance operation, but control premiums are very rich. Um, finding deals like Allegheny, which inside of Berkshire is just a home run. Again, the ability to to, to reconfigure the investment portfolio. You've got a lot of profitability that's coming. Three quarters of, of TransRe, which is the largest insurance piece that, that Berkshire's picking up, does $5 billion in premium. Three quarters of their business is proportional. And with all the price that they've taken in the last two years, the profitability of that entity is going to be way higher. Um, being able to, to put money into Occidental, really there is, is an acknowledgement that the guy in charge can change his mind. When Berkshire bought the preferred piece uh, to help finance Occidental's acquisition of Anadarko, CVX was in there originally and they got outbid by Oxy. CVX got a 15% breakup fee, I think. Um, Oxy needed financing and Vicki Holub went to Omaha and, and, and uh, worked out a deal where Berkshire got an 8% coupon on 10 billion of preferred and warrants to buy, oh, 80 something million shares. Um, those, those dividends, that $200 million a quarter, had an option to be paid in, in shares and not in cash. Well, Oxy's balance sheet had run up to $40 billion. It was very stretched. Things looked pretty bad during the pandemic when oil prices traded down to low levels. And when Berkshire was paid in shares and not in cash, even though the stock was very cheap, they were selling the stock outright when, they, when they'd get that $200 million. To then come back with the stock having traded into the single digits in, in, in fall of 2000, to then come out here in the last quarter and recently put another 7 or $8 billion in buying the common as a testament to seeing what's now the opportunity that exists that maybe wasn't as apparent a year and a half or two years ago. Um, I think, I think Greg and Todd and Ted, um, I think, I think, I think the culture lends itself to an understanding that they've really got to put in today's dollars, a bunch of money to work. If the stock trades up in price, to a level where it's not attractive, that's actually detrimental to Berkshire because if you can't buy things for control premiums that make sense and your own stock is too expensive and you've already maxed out the CapEx you can spend in the energy operation and you've already upgraded your infrastructure in the railroad to where you're no longer spending $2 in CapEx for every dollar of depreciation, if the universe and your opportunity set on the capital allocation front diminishes, then I think you introduce the concept of probably paying special dividends first and only years down the road in arrears uh, are are paying a a regular common dividend. But for the moment, there's no shortage of things to do with the money. And I think they're putting the capital to work on very good terms in a very expensive uh, asset environment. And so I'm pretty happy and I think durably for 10, 20, 30 years the as long as the culture doesn't change, kind of back to my risk factor on Berkshire, as long as the culture doesn't markedly change, the folks that are running it, as long as they see to it that their replacements share in the culture uh, and, and the mindset, I think this thing can run for a long time.
thanks for such a wonderful uh, thought process thank you i have always wanted to say this i have nothing to add <laughs> so let, let's take the next uh, uh, caller uh, it's chris let's hope his uh, microphone works this time around i show you muted chris yeah i i also see chris is muted If it's the Chris Freed, I know he's an attorney. He's going to figure this thing yeah, out. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Uh, yeah, yes, can, can hear you now. Yeah. yeah, this is Chris Freed from Philadelphia. Uh, Chris, I've contacted you before, and I've been following the uh, 10K guy as well on Twitter. Um, thank you for taking my question. Uh, it's a question that I submitted for Saturday, uh, whether or not that will be asked or not. I'm curious what you guys think of it. And it's um, dealing with Berkshire's um, – share buybacks. As the, the buyback continues, the economic ownership continues to shift to class B shareholders. On the other hand, the voting powers, the percentage-wise, is increased on an A shares. And I think two issues could be developing. One, there could be a premium that's going to be developing for A shares compared to B shares because of the voting rights power. And two, the institutional ownership of the A shares that could become an issue in regards to the uh, continuation of the culture at Berkshire in the uh, near future. Well, not near future. I would say mid to long term. So what, what do you guys think on both of those issues? Uh, sure, um, Chris, do you want to go first? Sure, go, go ahead. Well, it's important. Um, it is important. It, it's not immediately important given – Mr. Buffett's position, and if if you look down the roster of insiders that have to file, and that would be your directors and your executives, so Greg and Ajit, and then all the directors, um, there are a lot of shares still owned in, in in the A block to where, you know, even though as as a percentage of of the outstanding shares, the Bs have risen in scope, particularly as Mr. Buffett gives his shares to charity and they convert to the bees and are sold, you still have the preponderance of the voting power embedded in the A shares. Um, I own a, a, a fair, I'm a small, small holder of Berkshire, but you know, I've got a decent chunk in the A's and, and I think it's important to own the A's for the voting rights. I don't want to elaborate too much because um, I, I'm, I'm, I am concerned about BlackRock and I'm concerned about CalPERS and I'm concerned about these nut jobs on the governance front. And um, it, it's it's a subject that, that I'm maybe even more happy to talk about offline than I am in a, in, in, in a public setting, if you can read between the lines. Yeah, so I, I will just say this, uh, Chris is perfectly right. Uh, the A shares have most of the voting power. The B shares have um, uh, almost no voting power and ultimately it uh, what it boils down to is who ends up owning the a shares at the moment it's not a big risk because uh, buffett owns a lot of the a shares but over a period of time uh, his a shares will be converted into b's and sold and then so his a shares are no longer on the block so now it comes down to who is going to own the uh, the A shares and what they can do with all that voting power. So as as Chris says, if uh, 
uh, some some institutions uh, with a lot of capital get access to these A shares and they own them and then they decide to enact some policies that are going to be detrimental to other shareholders and things like that. Uh, it is going to be very unfortunate. Uh, so it's it's really hard to tell uh, ten, 10 years down the line where the A shares end up. Um, yeah, so, so I, I don't have anything uh, particularly bright to say beyond that. I just think systemically we don't want to become Europe from a governance standpoint. And so Berkshire is a bastion of the way governance ought to work. And I wish these activists would leave it alone. And they're going to learn a lesson here at, at the meeting when we've got enough individual shareholders between the A and the B class that that really do appreciate the culture. Um, we're going to see a resounding message sent on all four of the proxy proposals. And I hope Berkshire retains a knowledgeable share base when Mr. Buffett retires or gets hit by the proverbial bus and they, or they take, you know, they take him out in a pine box. Um, culture, culture, culture is really what matters at the margin at Berkshire. And, um, I'll leave it at that. Right. Exactly. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Chris. Uh, so the next caller is Casey. Uh, Hello, Casey. Yep, I'm here. Uh, yeah. Chris, I think in the value crowd, guys like Nick Sleep, Manish Barai, Guy Spear, and others, you hear a lot about buying comp buying uh, compounders and holding them forever. You know, this is obvious on its face if you're not substantially overpaying. You said you buy below intrinsic value. Does that mean you're always selling that intrinsic value? Could you share an average holding period? Well, our annual turnover has averaged about 15%. Um and in a portfolio of let's call it 25 stocks on average, um, again, if you look at the F, there are a bunch of names at the bottom that that I don't effectively own uh, that are there for tax reasons, but they're not model positions. Um, if you if you think about um, most of my trading is not new positions and eliminating positions entirely. On average, over the years, we've really only added two, three new names a year and eliminated two or three names per year. Um, it's it's the trading around the appraisal of, of intrinsic value and trying to do it, um, trying to do it opportunistically and for those taxable investors tax efficiently. So we'll take losses if we need to offset gains to the extent losses exist. I mean, we had the high class problem here recently of not having any losses in the portfolio. Uh, to offset any realized capital gains. Um, I will leave, again, for these compounders, and I, I addressed it in an earlier comment, I don't like to blow positions totally out of a portfolio, so I'll keep a, a, a stub position, if you will, but shrink positions. So I'll take something from six down to three, down to two, down to one, where I've got a very low cost basis, I'm not going to harm a taxable investor, especially where there's prospect for a basis step up to the extent that's still a thing. Um, I just don't like to sell them. I know Lou Simpson adopted the approach and I came to it later in my career after losing things like Ross and watching it grow as a 20 bagger after I sold it in 2004. Um, my Costco position is a fraction of what it's been and <laughs> really every time I've sold it, it's been a mistake. 
Um, but I own a lot of my original shares. I own all of my original shares and taxable accounts at an original $29 basis. And on that, we've earned $29 in special dividends, 17 or 18 in regular dividends, and a stock that's traded from 29 up to as high as 600, maybe five, I didn't see where it closed today, 560 something. Um, and because they're there, like I said earlier, I can add to those positions. Um, so I try to keep turnover down. The investor, and there are all kinds of ways to skin the cat, but the investor that trades more maniacally than I do with 50 and 100 and 2 and 300% turnover, you know, you're buying multiples, you're buying whatever, for whatever reason, you're day trading. Um, I find that by owning things for a long time with an average holding period of five, six, seven years, um, my returns stem from the price that I paid at the outset, which gives me a high earnings yield. I get accretion to fair value over time. Doesn't mean I'm going to sell it at fair value. I've got names in the portfolio now that are trading well in excess of my appraisal. And I always try to act with uh, an eye toward opportunity cost. I'm always measuring what I can do on a after-tax basis with capital against each other. But by owning things for a long time, by owning companies for a long time, I eventually earn the economics of the business. And on a portfolio with a very low payout rate, albeit with a low price, you know, trading it at an 8 or 9% earnings yield, but only getting 18% of our profits as dividends, Berkshire skews that because they don't pay a dividend. Um, the majority of my earnings, 82%, are reinvested, and I own businesses that generally have places to invest retained earnings at high returns. And if you own a business long enough, it's what happens with not only the current profitability, but the compounding of what happens by reinvesting at the firm ROE or higher, finding places that can open stores or reinvest in CapEx and R&D and earn mid-teens, high-teens, low-20s, mid-20s returns on reinvested capital. If you own a business for a long time that has that high return on capital and ability to reinvest capital structure to it, you're going to get the returns of the business eventually. And you don't get that if you're a day trader. Thanks. And the last, last question, just real quick. I'm a new Berkshire uh, shareholder as of 2021. Obviously, you know, you have the uh, itinerary, but for a new, for a new timer like myself or anybody listening, any insight into what to do on Friday or anything that we should know that we're not going to know that's published? As far as being in Omaha? Yeah, being in Omaha this week and going to the meeting for, for a new timer. Oh, well, you got to do the stuff. You got to go out to Borsheim's and do the cocktail party. And I don't know if they're going to do the ping pong this year on, on Sunday morning. But there's a there's a cocktail party on Friday night. You've got to go tour and walk through the furniture mart. You've got to go over to Borsheim's and just kind of see the local businesses. Um and then, then just hang out around the hotels. And you, certainly you've got a, a, a peer group, I would guess, that goes. The highlight of my year is always getting together with my friends and colleagues that assemble once a year. And, you know, we'll see each other and talk to each other throughout the year. But getting together at that period of time, we used to go in on Friday and head out on Sunday, typically after the Markell meeting. And Markell's meeting was very, very small or early on. There was just a you know, couple dozen folks in the room. Um, but I go in earlier now. I'm there for four or five nights, typically. Um, and the highlight is just getting together with 
there are folks that I haven't seen for the year and catching up and, you know, we sit around for three or four days and talk about stocks and talk about our families, but we, you know, mostly talk about stocks and investing because we're all kind of oddly wired in the same way. And we drink very, very well and we eat very, very well. And so I think hanging out where the action is down around the old market, there's lots to do, lots of good restaurants and lots of good places to libate. Um, but make sure you got a friend group that you build and that you're running around with, because that that's really what the weekend is all about for me. It's not so much the six or seven hours of Q&A. It's awesome now that we can get that live streamed and that CNBC has the fabulous archive of all of those meetings back to 1994. I, sh- I should have mentioned that earlier as well. I mean, in, in addition to the chairman's letters, in terms of getting your mind around Berkshire, go just podcast, listen, or watch even. Uh, all those annual meetings. I mean, the archive exists, and the what what CNBC has done with it as as the gift from Berkshire Hathaway, making the entire Q and A session of the annual meeting six six and a half hours for years and years and years available to the public is terrific. But I, to me, that's how you attack them. You got to do all you got to do all the shareholder stuff, and on the website, you've got the list of all the activities. There's a lot going on, and there are all kinds of side uh, 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 events. You've got, uh, I know Creighton does a thing. I'm doing an idea pitch on Friday at MOI Global, um, John's group, John Mahalovich. Um, so, there, there's, so there's a lot to do, a lot of opportunities. And, uh, if that helps, just go to the Berkshire website and, and check out the agenda of all the things that are happening in town. Yep. Will do. Thanks, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's great to know because I, I have been to only one uh, Berkshire meeting. I have not actually attended uh, more than that. And th- this year we we just got a puppy, so I'm I'm not going to be able to attend. But I'm looking forward to attend next year. And then Chris seems like he knows uh, what to do, so I I think I'll just uh, call him and then uh, hang around behind him wherever he goes I go yeah I got a well I got my own version of a puppy the first year I went was the 2000 meeting because we had just bought the stock and then my daughter uh my firstborn um on April 18 of 2001 came into existence and so she was my puppy and with the meeting less than two weeks after she was born I did not attend the 01 meeting but until the pandemic uh, eliminated the last two, I'd been to every one. And so I, I love it. It's again, it's one of the highlights of the year. It's, it's really about seeing all the folks and catching up with everybody. Did you write a question and make your daughter uh, read it out when she was five years old or something like that? No, I can't even get my kids to read my letter or <laughs> listen to any podcasts. And so um, they, they both own some Berkshire, uh, but at this point in their young lives, 18 and 21, they're, they are not barreling down the path of doing what I do, which is great. Well, uh, th- this has been lovely, Chris. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, this was so educational. Just listening to this podcast, um, I, I think people who are new to Berkshire and uh, who don't understand the company as well as you. Uh, this is a great starting point for them to understand the business. And uh, if you guys haven't listened to it, I also recommend Chris's uh, recent podcast. Uh, he, he did a podcast episode with uh, uh, 
the investors podcast we study billionaires with the uh, stick broderson uh, and that podcast in that podcast also chris gets into more details about berkshire and how he arrives at his uh, valuation for berkshire the sum of the parts valuation and things like that uh, that is also a wonderful listen if you guys are interested so thank thank you so much chris i hope you have a great time at the annual meeting and well uh, yeah, this has been fun. I've, it's been a pleasure doing it. We've got another uh, Meb. I, I, I talked with Meb Faber last week, and I know he was going to drop that discussion prior to the Berkshire meeting, so sometime here this week. And any of oh, these great. talks, if, if this one's going to be uh, available on an archive, we, we try to put all of them up on the website. So, uh, Right. That, that was going to that. be my next question. Where, where do people learn more about you, uh, read your letters, um, and... Uh, uh, follow you on Twitter, thing, things like that. What, what, what do people do to follow your work? Yeah, the archive of the letters and uh, a bunch of podcasts are on separate tabs on the semperaugustus.com website. And I am on Twitter. I had a couple comments on the price being paid and, and how the deal for uh, Twitter has been financed today uh, that seemed to get some traction. Um, We'll see how that story evolves. Uh, I, I'd prefer maybe that I wasn't on Twitter and maybe maybe Elon's intent is just to close the whole damn thing down. But I am uh, at Chris Bloomstrand on Twitter as well. And here we are on Twitter tonight. Uh, so, Chris, can I extract a promise from you not to write a scathing thread about any of us on the call today? Uh, a scathing of anybody on this call? Yeah. No, no, rest assured, um, unless you're in the business of uh, fleecing retail small investors, uh, rest assured, I'll, I'll do no fleecing. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I almost called you by the real name. Thank you, 10K Diver.